Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when you find the overlap between your greatest passions and the world's greatest needs. I was really inspired by my conversation with this guest today, and I am very excited to share it with you all. My guest this week is Liam Elkind, who is a Rhodes Scholar, a born and bred New Yorker, and the CEO and co-founder of the organization Invisible Hands Deliver. I got to talk with Liam all about his work, so without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Liam Elkind. I'm Liam Elkind. I'm born and raised New Yorker. I'm 23 years old, recently 23. Um, I'm a recent Yale grad and current co-founder and CEO at Invisible Hands Deliver, which is a nonprofit that I started with a couple friends back in uh, March 2020 at the height of the pandemic to deliver food and medicine and other essentials to those most in need. And as we've moved forward, we've expanded our mission to really try to dive into this issue of food insecurity using the power of community organizing and grassroots volunteering to help address some of the most pressing issues of our time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I would love to first start off by having you tell me more about Invisible Hands Deliver. Can you tell me more about how you got started with the organization and what you're doing with it now? I think it's a great project and I'd love to learn more. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Uh, In March of 2020, I was a junior in college. I was on spring break and COVID hit, everything locked down. And I remember the public health messaging at the time, especially in New York, the place that was hardest hit by the pandemic at the time was, you know, be a hero, stay home. And I understood the importance of social distancing, but at the same time, the notion that I was being heroic somehow by sitting on my butt watching reruns of Project Runway felt a little bit ludicrous to me. And so I thought, all right, well, there's gotta be more that I can do, but I didn't know exactly what that more looked like until I saw a post on Facebook from a friend of mine that said, does anybody know of a volunteer organization out there that I could volunteer for delivering food or medicine or other essentials to, to people who are stuck at home, right? The elderly, the immunocompromised, people who are sick, people who have disabilities, people who can't get out themselves and, and go shopping in the way that they would in a, in a non-COVID time. And people were commenting on the post saying, sounds like a great idea, would love to volunteer for something like that too. But nobody knew what that organization was. And so I reached out and I said, what if we built that organization? And so we put up some flyers around town with my personal phone number on them. That's a very bad idea. Don't do that. Um, We put out the call to action on social media. We set up a website and, um, you know, I thought it would be a couple dozen volunteers. We do a few dozen requests and then COVID would be over and we'd all go back to our, you know, previously scheduled programming. Obviously that did not end up happening. Um, And in fact, Blake Lively put that flyer on her Instagram and then it was an L magazine. And then Bernie Sanders emailed out my personal phone number to his entire email list and said, call this number if you need free food. And so I just got absolutely shellacked and inundated with requests from all around the country, right? Not just New York, but Texas and California, places around the, the country and eventually around the world, people calling and saying, hey, can you deliver to me in you know, Fort Worth, Texas? And it was, I'm like, it's three in the morning, please let me sleep. Um, and it was a real reminder of the power of community organizing to get things done but also such a a profound reminder 
and such a profound indictment of our government inefficiencies. Um, if you tried to call the New York City hotline in the early days of the pandemic and say, I need food, they said, yeah, we can't help you call invisible hands. And that notion um, that our social safety net should rest on a 20 year old college student remembering to pick up his phone, that's a bonkers way to run a society. Um, and so, you know, we've been now working with uh, food pantry partners and mutual aid groups and religious institutions, places that have food, that have funding, that have deep roots in the community, um, and then trying to leverage our volunteer power to go out there to pick up and deliver food to people who can't afford their own. Um, and that is long-term. Our, our goal and our mission is to address food insecurity in that way, because three quarters of people who are food insecure don't go to a food pantry right, due to the logistical challenges and the scheduling challenges and the social stigma associated with food insecurity. And so if we can provide a safe and efficient and an anonymous delivery system for people, we can begin to actually prioritize their health and their dignity and their valuable time. And so while we started as a crisis response, we've realized that the inequities that have been unveiled and exacerbated by this pandemic, um, those aren't going away, no matter how many shots and boosters we all get in our arms. And so figuring out ways long-term to address the systemic nature of an issue like food insecurity um, is gonna be our, our caring call for a long time. That's so interesting. So with this project and with your passion for this work, where do you see this organization going in the future? Do you see yourself working on Invisible Hands Deliver long-term or do you see yourself working in the private sector or maybe do you see yourself running for office to combat these issues? Just tell me some about what you're thinking for the future of Invisible Hands Deliver and of course for your own future. Yeah, I mean, so for Invisible Hands, I'm I'm headed off to grad school uh, in the fall in just under a month. Um, and I'll be in England. You're very humble, but I have to point out that you're going to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, which is so exciting. So congratulations on that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Oxford in the fall. Um, I'm excited about it. It'll be a, a great time. Um, and I, I plan to study um, comparative government there um, with a focus on comparative democracy. My, my interest long-term is figuring out how we can use grassroots tools, volunteer organizing, but then scale that work through the public sector. And I think that the only way that we can scale community-based organizations work is through a responsive government infrastructure, right? Like I said earlier, I think this experience helped me reckon with the fact that our government too often is not responsive to the people it's supposed to serve. And so I wanna study issues like voting rights and campaign finance reform, other procedural reforms, with the long-term goal of figuring out how do we create a more responsive, more accountable, more vibrant democracy here in the United States. Um, that is, I think, my long-term passion because I'm passionate about the work that we do at Invisible Hands, but the truth is we shouldn't need an Invisible Hands and we shouldn't have to rely on these patchwork mutual aid nonprofit efforts. Our government should be there, right? We, we sometimes can get so excited by these stories of people coming together and, and overcoming hardship that we lose sight of the fact that those hardships maybe shouldn't exist in the first place. And so how can we be building systems to ensure that those hardships don't need to exist? That, that I think long-term is, is my main interest. Um, and whether that's through the public sector or the private sector, or the nonprofit sector, I'm still trying to figure out. And that's actually one of the things that I'm hoping to, to study over the next two years is where do my passions lie? and where is the greatest overlapping between my greatest passions and the world's greatest needs. Um, as, as Wes Moore, the CEO of Robin Hood Foundation, or former 
CEO of Robin Hood Foundation, now a Democratic candidate for governor in Maryland, said, right? And, and his path of working in the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector and now running for office himself is, is interesting to me. I don't know where I fit in all of that, but I, I want to figure that out over the next two years and then hopefully amplify my impact through whichever sector it ends up being. Um, and for Invisible Hands, it's a little bit early to say there will be more information in the weeks to come. Uh, but the, the headline is the work will continue of Invisible Hands. And we're working with a bunch of nonprofit partners to make that happen. You are going to love Oxford, and I'm so excited that you get to study there. I've talked with a couple Rhodes Scholars for this podcast, and I really enjoyed talking with them about their process to apply and then about their experiences at Oxford. It's such an amazing accomplishment, and I would love to hear about your experience as a Rhodes Scholar so far. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rhodes is an interesting thing, right? It's this kind of like highfalutin thing um, with a very complex layered history. It's, the, I think, the oldest postgraduate scholarship in existence or something like that and has a kind of affiliated affiliation with academic strength but then also a hunger for service and that hunger for service was what interested me um i had a a mixed bag in undergrad and i i felt like i wanted something that if i was going to go to grad school i didn't just want it to be academic and theoretical i wanted to be studying with and from people who were actively doing the work because you know, COVID was extraordinarily tough, but I felt like I learned so much more doing nonprofit work than I ever could have in a classroom. Um, and so I wanted that kind of practical hands-on experience. And so so that's why the Rhodes Scholarship spoke to me at first. It is a harrowing ordeal to apply for. Um, it's very intense, very scary, lots of like important, scary people interviewing you and asking you all kinds of crazy questions. Um, I got asked, do you believe in hell at one point? That was an interesting one. I got asked, like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Like, what's the time that you let somebody down? I mean, they they dive deep into just they they plumb your emotional depths. But it was it was it was a really exciting process for me because it felt like the opportunity to do a lot of introspection, right? A lot of people think that for some of these scholarships, the goal is to know as many facts as possible and be as smart as possible. The tack I took was trying to know as much about myself as possible. I think it is a deeply introspective process, and the more you know yourself, the better chance you have it getting the scholarship, but also whether or not you get the scholarship becomes somewhat moot if you feel like you've gained some additional insight into yourself. Um, It's definitely a a harrowing ordeal, but I'm really grateful for it. And I'm really looking forward to the next two years to be able to take a more academic approach to something I've been doing very practically, um, but still with the long-term goal of, of getting involved in this community organizing work and hoping to scale some of those efforts through the public sector. You are absolutely going to gain that hands-on experience being in such an inspiring place with people who are making real change around the world. And I'm just, I'm so excited for you. So thank you so much for sharing that. I would also love to know, I'm sure you've had some amazing conversations through your work with Invisible Hands Deliver. And I'd like to know, are there any words of wisdom or pieces of advice that you've picked up that have really stuck with you? Over the last two and a half years, I've made so many mistakes and learned so many lessons um, that it's hard to dive into anything too specific. I think I learned both the hard knowledge of nonprofit structure and board governance and legal incorporation matters and tax issues, uh, fiscal sponsorship models, all that kind of thing. I think the biggest things I learned were the soft skills of leadership of organizing, of convincing someone, of how to 
devise a creative solution in a resource constrained environment. Um, and I think the, the biggest lessons that I would say could apply to anything and that I certainly hope to bring to the next things that I do are listen to the experts, trust your gut and always adapt, right? When I started out, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, on an organizing front, I'd done some, you know, organizing on the level of maybe a couple dozen people max, not on the level of thousands of people. Um, I certainly didn't know anything about legality surrounding nonprofits or anything like that. And in fact, I didn't want to start a nonprofit. The only reason I did was because suddenly I was getting thousands of dollars in donations into my Venmo account and into my co-founder's PayPal account. And the lawyer said to us, hey, that's taxable income unless you turn it into a nonprofit. We are like, oh God, we cannot pay taxes on this money. Um, and so, so we incorporated it as a nonprofit. And so we had to learn, how do we do that? How do we apply for nonprofit designation from the IRS? And can we get a fiscal sponsor in the meantime? How do we hack that? And, and meanwhile, all this money's coming in, all these people are calling us, right? It's, we were very much building the bike while we were riding it. So we had to listen to the experts, right? Always listen to the experts, seek out the experts um, who you're, maybe you don't know, but you know someone who knows someone who knows someone who is an expert in that area. Um, and always listen to the experts. But when it comes to those softer skills, at a certain point, the buck stops with you. If you're running a social entrepreneurship idea um, or innovating somehow, it's up to you. And there are no experts who are gonna be able to tell you what to do. And the truth is, if people didn't know what they were doing, there wouldn't be a need for invisible hands in the first place. Especially in COVID, nobody knew what they were doing. And so there was kind of a sense of, all right, no one knows what's going on. Why don't we make a change? Why don't we do something at the very least? Um, and so even as you're listening to the experts, you also have to trust your gut. Um, and that is incredibly important. And then if you realize, oh no, my gut was totally wrong about it, then you adapt then you'd say, okay, clocked that lesson. Let me keep moving forward. So as an example, um, with our first donations that we started getting in, um, we put the money directly back into the community in the form of a subsidy program. So if you needed free food, if you couldn't afford your own food, we would subsidize your food up to $30 per household per week. Um, all you had to do was tick a box on our website, or if you were calling our call center, let the call center know. It was a great program. We were able to serve thousands of people with it. The issue was, demands kept growing and our donations didn't. And so as more and more people heard about it, we kept getting more and more requests for the subsidy. Um, we were getting calls from homeless shelters saying, can you sponsor our entire food budget? And we were like three weeks old at this time. And we would have been bankrupt in the span of a couple of days. I mean, we were getting six times, we were having to spend six times what we were getting in. And so we unfortunately had to shut down the subsidy program. And all of the people who had come to rely on that program were suddenly suddenly had the rug pulled out from under them and were calling us saying, what am I supposed to do now? And it was a reminder that even with the best of intentions, if you offer something that you haven't fully thought through and then you have to cancel it, the impact is, is worse than neutral, right? Because suddenly you're, you're pulling away something that you promised would be there. And so we immediately started looking for, okay, Maybe we as a few weeks old organization reliant entirely on grassroots donations don't have the funding to pay for all of the food in New York City. But you know what, there are organizations that do, right? There's already a system set up for food distribution. There are food pantries, there are mutual aid groups already in existence. There are churches and synagogues and mosques still uh, distributing food. And so what, what do they lack? Oftentimes they lacked a system for delivering that food directly to the homes of people who don't live near a food pantry or for whom walking distance is not 
is maybe a block because maybe they have a disability or they live in a walk up and they can't walk up and down the flight uh, flights of stairs all the time. Um, so we can be there to deliver. We can use our volunteer power to partner with those pantries and deliver. So experimenting with different models of food delivery um, and of addressing the problem that we were there to try to help with eventually helped us build to a more sustainable place. So to abstract that lesson a little bit, I think that, you know, even as you trust your gut, you're trying to do good things, try to think through it. It would have been better if we talked to more experts before starting that subsidy program. And then try to adapt, try to figure out, are there systems in place that can already do what I'm doing better? And then how can I be additive, right? Rather than how can I just get in this field and kind of compete with these already existing organizations? It's how can I be of service and of use to my community? And that's the best lesson that I've learned. I think that's so interesting. And I hadn't thought about that point about how if you don't think through all the details and make some concrete plans, the impact could be worse than neutral if people come to rely on your help. That's that's an interesting thought that it makes me think about my own podcast and some of my own learning experiences I've had along the way and correcting some of the mistakes I've made. And at the same time, right, you can't just let that paralyze you into doing nothing. I think one of the things that I love about his plans is that on our worst day, we're never making anybody's life worse, right? Like the subsidy program was difficult. I'm still glad that we did it. And so I think a lot of times in areas of public policy or the for-profit world, or even a lot of nonprofits, if you make a bad decision, people's lives are made worse. The great thing about what we do is even if we fill zero deliveries in a day, no one's life has been made worse by that fact. Um, and that gives me a lot of comfort. Um, and it, it, it's an imperative to, to act more, right? When people say, what can I do? You know, uh, there's, these problems are so huge in scope. What am I going to do my, myself personally? I think that we're often missing the ball, that our goal shouldn't be to change the world. It should just be to solve a problem. If you've solved a problem today for somebody else, you, then you've made your difference. Then you've done your thing. The, the fact that you are not yourself going to change the world, redefine our food system, elect somebody different with your single vote isn't a, an excuse to not engage. It's a mandate to engage more and to do more. I love that idea. And all of this work that you're doing is still helping, as you mentioned, even if there are hitches, your organization is still making a positive impact. I have one last question for you. Lots of young people, particularly college students and high school students, want to create change and they want to make a difference, but they may not know how to get started. Do you have any words of wisdom for those people who may be listening? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about wisdom, but uh, words of words of empathy, at least. You know, I I was right there, right? Like at the start of COVID, I was like, I have no idea what to do, but I want to do something good, right? And that impulse right there is a great start. It's not enough, but it's a great start. I think that the biggest thing is figure out what is a problem that you can solve? That right there, that's the question. It's not about what are my grand ambitions for world change, um, because that often gets us a little bit too head in the sand or head in the sky, really, um, and, and prevents us from seeing the problems in our own community. If you see a problem that a friend of yours is dealing with or a member of your community is dealing with, or you, or you realize, hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be having 90-year-old people wheeling around carts in a grocery store in the middle of a global pandemic. That, that seems like a problem. Is there something I can do to fix it? Yeah, I can go out and deliver, right? It starts with what can I do to help? And, and a part of that is doing research, whether that's 
you know, Google Scholar research or whether that's just talking to somebody in your community and saying, hey, what's going on? Um, to learn a little bit more before just jumping into a solution. It starts with a problem. As, as Wes Moore said, you know, at one point, your goal should never be to start something. It should be to end something, right? What is the problem that you can address? And then if you realize that that problem is best suited to the nonprofit structure, great. Then do some research on how to apply to the IRS for, for nonprofit status or get a fiscal sponsor. If that's best addressed just through you personally and a group of friends on a grassroots level, fantastic. If that's addressed best through the private sector, fantastic. There are a myriad of different solutions, but I think it starts with addressing the problem and then thinking through ways that you yourself can begin to be a part of the solution to be the change. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think Liam shared some great advice about being the change the world needs, as well as being the change you wish to see. It's so important to target a problem with the advocacy, activism, or volunteer work you're doing. The most impactful and most fulfilling work comes when you identify a problem or a need, and you figure out how your own passions overlap with that problem. For Liam, he saw the issues his community faced during the pandemic and figured out how he could use his interests and resources to address that problem. Liam is so passionate about the work he's doing to make a change the world needs, and I think we can all keep his advice in mind, because change comes when you find the overlap between your greatest passions and the world's greatest needs. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can find Liam on Instagram at Liam Elkind to get connected with him, and you can find Invisible Hands Deliver on Instagram as well at Invisible Hands Deliver. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.